You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's great to see you. Um, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 23, that's where we're going to be, and I'm probably going to need that later. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be. And as we get started, and you're kind of flipping there, it's going to take us just a second to, to get into that passage. But I want to remind you, since it is Easter, that this is a day that for centuries, roughly 20 centuries now, um, that, that Christians have gathered together to, to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and that this isn't a on-the-edges issue. This is a central issue. This isn't like a nuanced theological point. Um, this isn't a agree-to-disagree matter. This is like a central component of what it means to be a Christian. This is why John Stott said this. Christianity at its essence is a resurrection religion. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. And if you, if you take this component out, we don't have a component. We've got nothing left. Everything else falls around it. This is um, part of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. Part of the point he's making that if you take the resurrection out of this thing, then you as a Christian, you're to be far more pitied than anyone else on the planet. That if you take this out, everything else falls apart. If you take this out, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Right? So this is, this is central. I love how one pastor said it. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, if it didn't happen, then nothing ultimately really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, then nothing else really matters. And that's true. It's a life altering, life changing reality. And so in light of that, if you are here today and uh, your grandma bribed you to come, And you're skeptical. You're just kind of on the edges um, and and you're kind of peering in. You're kicking the tires. I want to encourage you to make sure you're kicking the right tire. I want to make sure that you're asking questions, not not dealing with the edges of this thing, but that actually deal with the center of it. Did Jesus really come to earth, live, die, and, and was he raised again? And if your answer is yes to that, I just encourage you to make sure you follow that and play that thing out. And I think that you'll find what many people in this room have found, that the answer to that question has absolutely radically re-altered the, the course of their life, right? And so make sure you start with the right questions. Okay, Luke 23 is where we're going to be. And I, I need to set it up with um, a, a, a few words here, a couple of prefaces. And I don't let this discourage you when you first hear it. Okay, it, it might sound a little discouraging, but don't let it. 99.9% of the questions that you are asked and that you answer are really trivial. 99.9%. So think about the daily rhythm of your life. 99.9% of those questions are, are really trivial. And when I say trivial, I, I'm just saying that at the end of the day, you could be wrong on those questions and they don't affect a, a whole lot of your life now. Little's lost now and, and your eternity isn't altered. Right. So they're just trivial in that sense that you could be wrong and very little is lost at the end of the day. Okay, you, you might suffer a little bit temporally from it. Very little is lost at the end of the day. But 0.1% of questions, like the small minority of questions, are absolutely huge. They're monumental. I mean, massive. If you get these wrong, everything is altered. Like there's this 1% of questions that, that they set the direction of your life now and determine the future destination of your life later. Okay, so they set the direction now and determine your eternal destination. I mean, that they are massively important questions. And these 0.1% of questions deal with this idea, that this set of questions deal with this idea of who is God and how do you, how do you get in right relationship to God? Like, there is no more important questions. Who is God? Who, who is Jesus? And, and how, do, how do I become right with God? What does it require to be right with God? Like, welcome to the 0.1%. I love what one author said. He said, if a person is wrong about what it means to be right with God, if a person is wrong on what it means to be right with God, then listen to his conclusion. Then ultimately, it really doesn't matter what else he or she is right about. Okay, now let that just soak over your soul for a second. If a person is wrong on what it requires to be right with God, then in the final analysis, when we look back over the course of our life, here's what we're all going to come to the conclusion of. It won't matter what else we were right about. 
If we're wrong on the 0.1%, it doesn't matter if we're exactly right on the 99.9%. And so in light of that, here's what I want to do today. I want to just start raising like that 0.1% question. I want to make sure that that you have a second to engage in that. And and here's the thing. I'll promise you this. If you'll engage in this for just a few minutes... For just a few minutes this morning, if you'll actually engage in these questions, I think it's got a chance to be a really worthwhile morning for you. Okay, so, so if we were going to ask this question, are you right with God? Okay, so let's just take that question, are you right with God? And if we were to sample 10 people out of your neighborhood, if we were to sample 10 people out of your workplace, 10 people in this room, every one of our responses are going to fall generally into one of four places. So this question, are you right with God? People's responses, one of four places that would, would sound something like this. Option number one, place number one, their response would be kind of convey this idea that they are secure, but they're not sure about it. Okay, now when we say secure, we mean this, that God has actually saved them, that God has done this work in their heart where he's rescued them and redeemed them, that they are right with God. So in this way, they are secure, like their relationship with God is right, but, but the problem is they're not sure about it. So when you ask them, are they right with God? They really are right with God, but they are besieged by doubt. And some of you in the room, this is where you find yourself today. That you are right with God, but man, that there is just doubt that assails you. And I want to give you hope if that's you in the room. That it's actually possible to know that you know God. You can actually know that. Like I love um, what uh, the writer of Hebrews says to these, these people of God that are just suffering all sorts of persecution. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, he says that they were joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. Why? Because they were certain, like they knew for sure that, that they had better possessions and more abiding possessions on the horizon. That they knew that for sure. So it's actually possible to know that you know God. Okay, so, so one, one place that you could land is that you're secure, but you're just not sure about it. Here's another place that you could land, is that you're secure and you're sure. So, so you would say, yeah, I am right with God. I, I am sure about that. And, and here's the, the good thing, is you actually are right with God. Like, like the most important thing is that you're correctly confident. That, that you're actually right with God and you're sure about it. So that could be a place that some of us sit in this room today when, when we try to answer that question, are we right with God? Here would be a third place. Is that some people feel sure about their response, like that they're right with God. They feel just so confident about that. They feel sure about it, but, but here's the problem. They're really not secure. Now, are you hearing that? They feel confident, but the problem is that they're incorrectly confident. They're falsely assured. They're sure that they're right with God, but they shouldn't be sure of it. Now, this is who Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 7. Okay, I want to read this passage to you. It's going to be up on the screen for you. So in Matthew 7, this is what Jesus says about kind of this, this category of people who feel sure, but in, in the final analysis, they're not right with God. He says, on that day, this will be on the screen for you. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all these mighty works in your name? Okay, so can we just see this? That They're not dabbling in this thing. They have been dipped in it, right? They are full bore. They are all in. If you put this in 21st century language, they are your churchgoers. They've got the Bible in hand. They are serving in ministry. They're doing all these great things with God. But here's the problem. They have bet their life foolishly that they know God, right? Okay, now look at the final analysis. It's this last verse here in verse 23. So they're doing all these great things, but here's what Jesus says to them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is what C.S. Lewis, this, this horrific scene of people being confused in this last moment and, and thinking that they're in, but they're really not in. He, he describes it as being banished from the presence of him who is everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all things. This horrific moment of, of thinking that you're right with God, but in the final analysis, you're not being right with God. And can I just point out what I think is the most scary, like the, the scariest word in this passage that on the screen here? This word many. See, it doesn't say um, for some or for just a few or for a couple of them, but many are going to say this on this. They're going to think that they're in. They're going to do all these good things thinking that they are right with God. But in the final analysis, they're going to be confused and confounded when they find out that I'm not right with God. J.C. Ryle, an old Puritan, he said this about this passage in Matthew 7. 
He said the day of judgment will reveal strange things. It will reveal strange things. The hopes of many who were thought great Christians while they lived will be utterly confounded. And see, here's the scary thing about the many. The the many, like the people in that category Jesus is talking about here, the many, say just what many of us are saying when we hear a passage like this. Well, I wish my husband could hear that. I I wish my son or daughter, my, my grandpa, grandpa, my neighbor could hear that. Can we all clarify this? You need to hear that. I need to hear this. Like we all probably ought to ask ourselves, could we be in the many? Because here's the problem with the many. The many doesn't think they're in the many. We all tracking with that. So I think it would be wise for all of us to say this. See, we say this um, all the time around here that we live in the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to live. And it's not because somebody's going to strap a bomb on and come up here and blow up the building. It's probably not going to happen. But, but here's what does happen. We live in a, in a cultural landscape that is saturated with people who would swear that they are right with God, when in reality, they're not. What we live in a cultural landscape, a Christian culture that, that, that really thinks that because I have mentally agreed with some facts about Jesus, that I am right with God. So, so I agree with the fact that, that Jesus is, is God, that he is God's son, that he came and lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as a substitute for my sin. He was risen from the dead on the third day. I believe in all of that. And so we've got this entire culture who mentally agrees with that and thinks that mental agreement makes you right with God. Can I just warn you on this, that the devil mentally agrees with all of those things? Every one of those things he would agree with. So mental agreement is not enough. It's a starting point. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. We've got this whole culture of Christians, professing Christians, people in the many. We've got this whole culture of them that is banking on them walking down an aisle, them completing some class at their church, them signing a card, them repeating a prayer, and they're banking their assurance on that fact, on this past reality of them doing something external. Can I, can I just warn you here? The Bible in no, there's not, you're not going to find one place in the Bible that gives assurance based on you signing a card, repeating a prayer, confirming in a class. You're not going to find one passage that's going to affirm that as a basis for your salvation. Not one. Like this is what the Bible affirms. See, here, here's the problem with all of those things. All of, they're all external. See, you don't have to be regenerate. God didn't have to do anything in your heart to repeat a prayer. He didn't have to do anything in your heart to complete a class, to sign a card, to walk down an aisle. All of those things are external. See, what becoming a Christian first is, is something internal. God actually does this thing in your heart where he totally re-alters everything in it, re-centers your life. For the first time, you start to see life differently. You have a new love. You value different things. New things are attractive to you. See, this is what it means to become a Christian. It's Psalms 42.1, that when you look at Jesus, it's just like the deer that pants for the water. That's how bad you want him. That's what a Christian is. See, and that takes a work of God to do. It's not just some external religious things that you're doing. It takes God regenerating and remaking your heart to love God like that. See, this is what the Bible gives a basis for assurance on. It's when you actually, you have a new love in your heart, namely Jesus. You actually have this new love where you're actually enthralled by and you actually value and love and count as precious Jesus. So you have this new love that produces this new way of living. That's what the Bible bases your assurance on. And so we've got this entire culture who is basing assurance on something different. And so maybe you find yourself in this category that today you would say, I am totally in on this. I am right with God when God is saying you're part of the many. One of the things I pray often for our church is that God would not allow us to sit in like deception on this, that he would open the eyes of our hearts so we could see these things clearly, right? Okay, but there's one more category that the fourth one is that there's some of us when you ask the question, are you right with God? They're not sure and they're not secure. In other words, they know they're not a Christian. They, they know they're not redeemed. They know God has not done this in their heart yet. They know that. And, and, and they're sure of that. Right? So, so you've got both of those things tied together that they are perfectly confident that they're not a Christian. And if you find yourself in that category this morning. Um, I just want to say this to you as um, one of the pastors here that thank you so much for entrusting us with a morning like this. Um, We want to be very good stewards of that. And so we hope that you find this to be a place that you can ask really honest questions and you don't get booted out of a place. 
We, we hope this is a place like that. That this is safe for you to, to, from the edges, investigate and kick the tires on what it means to become a Christian. Okay, so now in light of that, here's what I want to do in Luke chapter 23. I want it to uh, just illuminate and bring to light what it requires to be right with God. So, so that when we leave here, we're all sure about this. We all have a clear picture that maybe God would use this passage just to wipe away some of the fog for us this morning. Okay, so in Luke 23, this is the context. In Luke 19, Jesus has just strolled into Jerusalem and the crowds are going crazy. That The crowds are chanting his name. They're looking for the closest crown to put on his head as king. This, this is what the crowd's doing, but the crowds and their cheers would soon change. So if you fast forward a couple of chapters into Luke 22, you've got, a, it's Thursday night. Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room and he's about to take the Passover meal with him. He's about to have this meal with his disciples and he washes his, their feet. And then he leads them out to the garden of Gethsemane where they're going to pray together. And in that garden, um, it, it's this huge moment where Jesus looked, knowing the painful road ahead, Jesus looks at his father and says, if there's any way that you could take this road from me, if you could take this cup from me, if we can do this a different way, let's do that. But then he says, not my will, but yours. And in that moment, the stress was so heavy and the burden so wearisome that the capillaries in his face began to explode. And the Bible says that he literally was sweating drops of blood. In the early um, hours of Friday morning, he is betrayed and arrested. He's led around, paraded around between six different trials, and he is beaten just within an inch of his life. And and the crowd has has definitely changed in their cheering. At first, it was, let's crown him as king, but now it's, let's crucify him. And under kind of the weight of popular opinion, Pilate crumbles, and he sentences Jesus to be put to death by crucifixion. And this is where we pick it up in Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32 says this. Two others were criminal, uh, who were criminals. So two others, they were criminals. And Matthew and Mark, they, they, they kind of add this detail that they're thieves. So two others were crucified or kind of with Jesus were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, now here's what's about to happen in this passage. We're about to see these two criminals. And they're going to be these kind of metaphorical pictures for us. That categorically speaking, we're all going to find ourselves mirroring one of these two criminals. One of these two thieves that are crucified. One on the right, one on the left. You're going to find yourself today mirroring one of those. And let me just warn you on this. Your eternal destination... The course of your life now and your eternal destination later hinges on which of these two criminals represent you. So so I'm going to ask three questions that kind of help get to the difference of what separates these two criminals. And here's the first one, the first of three of what separates these two guys. First, do you see your need? Do you see your need? Let's start in uh, verse 39. You see verse 39 in, in Luke 23 says this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, the repentant one, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. So I just think it's really ironic when you think about these two criminals. One of them saw very clearly that what they're getting is right. That that they're... Crime, like it, it fits the punishment. That their sin fits the sentence. One saw that, recognized that, and, and said, okay, I, I'm in. I'm getting the due rewards of my deeds here. And the other one ran from that reality. See, one realized that he was a criminal and a justly condemned criminal. And the other one couldn't. He couldn't see it. He did everything he could to avoid that reality. Okay, now let's apply this over us in the room today. First of all, so we're asking the question, do you see your need? Maybe underneath that, you, you could ask yourself, which one of these two criminals am I here? Do, do I see that I am a criminal before God? Do you see that about yourself? That you are a criminal before God? That, that in the eyes of God, this is how he would see you? Like, this is um, Romans 5, where, where the Bible is going to call you, when you come out of the womb, that you are an enemy with God. Did you see that? See, it's, it's, it's my... Um, just observation that very few people recognize this. And I think this is the reason for that. Because I think we all have a habit of comparing ourselves to other people. 
So when we think about God and, and how good we are before God, we think that God actually judges on a bell curve. So we, we take everyone in the room and, and we kind of get them on a curve before God. And here's what we're saying. Well, I know I'm not as crazy as my neighbor. I know I'm not that crazy. I mean, I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler either. I mean, I, I'm probably on the, the good end of that scale. And, and we think that God judges us like that, that he's going to line us all up at the end of this thing. And he's going to take your neighbor, this guy, that guy, all of you together and say, now, what, who's kind of in the top 20 percent? And that crowd, we're going to be OK with them. But here's the reality. God has no bell curve. That's not the way God looks at any of us in the room. That maybe you could think about the grading system of God like this. It's either you're faultless or you flunk. That's the, that's, that's the only options. It's either you're perfect or you don't pass. This is how God would look at us. And in this way, we're all criminals. Okay, now here's the problem. He's not comparing you to other criminals. See, he's comparing you to, to, to his righteousness. He's comparing you to his standard. See, it's not going to be you and 10 others. It's going to be you and God's perfect standard of righteousness. See, that's what you're being compared to. So you're not a criminal if you're looking at your neighbor. But you are a criminal when you're compared to God's perfect righteousness. And, and one of the ways that we historically like to try to bring light to this is just using the Ten Commandments. So most of us in the room, if we were just going to throw out a few Ten Commandments, we could probably name a couple of them. Like, don't lie. But you know what the problem is for every one of us in the room? We've lied. Now, if you need proof of that, let us follow you around with the camera for about one week and we'd get plenty of evidence, I promise you. And we've all lied. Now, if I lied to you, what would you call me? A liar, Right? So in that sense, we're, we're all liars in, in, in that sense. Another Ten Commandments, don't steal. But here's the truth for everyone in the room. It doesn't matter if it's a paperclip out of your mom's purse when you're three years old. We've all stolen. And if I were to steal something from you, what would you call me? A thief, right? Okay, so, so we could keep going here. Um, Ten Commandments, don't murder. Jesus raises the bar of that commandment in the New Testament and says, if you've got hate in your heart, then you've murdered. That's a high bar. That's God's perfect standard of righteousness playing out. So, so in that regard, have you ever harbored hate in your heart towards somebody? If you're a human being, the answer is yes. Right? So we've taken three of the Ten Commandments, and here's what we know. We're lying, thieving murderers. See, this is what we are in the eyes of God. He's not comparing you to someone else. He's comparing you to his perfect standard of righteousness, that we're all criminals in that regard. And it's not just that we're all criminals. We're all justly condemned criminals. Like we're all actually under the sentence of condemnation from God. Like when God looks at us, it's not just, hey, you're a criminal. It's, hey, you are a condemned criminal. This is why Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That, that's the penalty for our sin. And I think our culture has this misconception of God that goes like this. That because God is good, surely he would not punish anyone at the end of this thing. Because God is good, surely he, he would be lenient at the end of this thing. And can I just tell you there's one problem with that? And it's the Bible. That the Bible doesn't give us that option. I, and maybe just to bring this to life for you, I'll use this imagery. If someone broke into your house tonight, and it's a little bit vivid, and they harmed everyone in the house, every one of your family members harmed, they're caught red-handed, they confess their crime, and now we're to the, to the point of their court date. The court date has arrived, and all of a sudden on that court date, the judge comes in and says, hey, you know, um, I got to know this guy a little bit, and I, I, this is just a small mistake. I know that he hurt some people. This is just a small mistake. So I think we're just going to let him off the hook on this one. I know that he murdered half of your family, but hey, on this one, we're okay. See, there would be uproar in you, wouldn't there? There would be me because that's not a good judge. A good judge does not sweep murder under the rug. A good judge actually comes through with justice on murder. Can we all agree with that? We're all in on that, right? And the same thing would be true of God. See, what makes a judge good is that he actually does punish sin and wrongdoing. That's what makes God good. So to say God is good so he won't punish sin is actually to call God bad. See, because he is good, he is absolute in his justice. He is not lenient when it comes to that. He demands retribution for all of our sin. So in this way, we are condemned criminals before God. Okay, now here's the question for all of us in the room. Do we see ourselves that way before God? That apart from Jesus, we're enemies of God. Apart from the saving work of Jesus, this is who we are before God. We are justly condemned criminals. So you can be one of two thieves. One recognized that, saw that, owned that, and one ran from that. 
And, and here, here's why this is so um, serious for us this morning. Until your sin, the seriousness of your sin sobers you, Jesus will never look satisfying to you. See, until your sin sobers you, you'll never look to Jesus as your savior. You'll never do that. But see, when your sin does sober you, when you start to live in and sit in the seriousness of your sin before God, when you start to see that I'm actually a justly condemned criminal before God, that's how he would see me. It makes Jesus look so great to us. It makes him look so life-giving, so hope-giving. So so which thief are you? Do you see your need? Do you recognize your need? Can you see what you are before God apart from Jesus? Okay, there's another question here. So it's not just do you see your need, but it's also do do you see who Jesus is? Do you see who Jesus is? And I think these two thieves provide an amazing picture here. In Matthew and Mark, it says that they're both hurling insults at Jesus. So, I mean, just think about this. They're moments away from their death. They have been pinned to a cross. Moments away from dying. And they're kind of in this battle for the best cut down going on. I mean, it's crazy. And then all of a sudden, one of the thieves comes to his senses. And he sees not only that I have a serious issue, I am sinful, I'm getting the the complete rewards of my deeds. Not only does he see that, but he also starts to see this different view of Jesus. He starts to see that Jesus is sinless. Okay, look at what he says here. Luke 23, verse 40. But the other, uh, but the other rebuked him. So the repentant criminal rebuked the unrepentant criminal saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the reward of our deeds. But this man, look at the statement, but this man has done nothing wrong, nothing wrong. So let me just point out this fact here. He's not saying that this guy was falsely accused. He's not saying, hey, we need to do, need a DNA sample here. This guy is not your man. He's not saying that. He said, this guy has done nothing wrong. And translated, he's sinless. He's actually lived a perfect life. And when we widen out from from just the story and cover the whole Bible, here's what we know about Jesus. That he perfectly lived out the commands of God. So in every one of the Ten Commandments where you fall short, here's what you can know about, about, about Jesus. He perfectly lived in them. He's sinless. He perfectly lived out the commands of God. But, but more than he's sinless, this, this other thief, he also saw that Jesus is the Savior. So he's seeing that Jesus is actually sinless and a savior. That because he's sinless, he could actually die on the cross for our sin and become a great savior for us. Look at what it says in verse 42. And he, the repentant criminal, said this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So so this man had spent all of his days in high-handed sin. He's a thief. Undeserving of the grace of God. And yet grace is about to be poured out on him. He starts to recognize that this man is my only hope. And he throws himself upon Jesus. See, he's starting to realize that this man, this Jesus, he is sinless and he is the savior. Okay, now let's ask the question for you. See, you're going to be one of these two thieves. You're going to be the one who recognizes who Jesus is, or you're going to be the one who doesn't recognize who Jesus is. So, so I think this is an important question that every human being has to answer. Who is Jesus? Who, who is he? And I, I just want to encourage you to make sure you think about this. Be a thinker this morning. See, you can't say that Jesus is just a good man. See, if, if he's a good man, like this good man, he made exclusive claims about who he was, that he was the son of God. He is the only way to be right with God. That if you want to be right with God, it requires faith in this Jesus. See, he, he, he's got exclusive claims. And so if you're going to say he's a good man, it demands you take the next step and actually call him your savior. See, you can't say that Jesus is just a good prophet. See, to say he's a good prophet means that he actually spoke truthful things. And he's speaking this. If you want God, you've got to come through me. I'm the only way to get to God. See, so if he's a good prophet, you've got to take the next step. It demands you taking the next step and also calling him a great savior. Did you see that? You can't just call him a good man. You can't just call him a a, a good prophet. This is why um, Tim Keller, he says it this way. You can crown him or you can kill him. But the one thing you can't do with Jesus is just take a step back and say, well, what an interesting man. You can't do that. 
He's not just an interesting man. He's either, maybe C.S. Lewis would help us here. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. He's either a liar who has us all fooled. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. I mean, normal people don't go around making claims to be God, do they? To be the, I mean, normally we lock those people up in padded rooms. Okay, so he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or C.S. Lewis says this, or you've got to fall down on your face before him and call him Lord. You've got to join this movement that has split history, defined history, changed the world. It's either one of those three. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. So the question is, who is he to you? See, you can look at Jesus and you can think a million different things. You can think a good man. You can think a good prophet. You can think, man, that guy got an imitatable life. He taught a few good things. And you can think all of those things and not view him as savior. And if you view him as all of those things, but fail to view him as savior, then you're going to be in the many in Matthew 7. So the question is, is it, who is Jesus to you? See, one thief saw who Jesus was. The other thief didn't. So, so the question is, do you see Jesus as Savior? As the sinless Savior who substituted himself for you on the cross? Do, do you see Jesus like that? Okay, one more question and we'll start to land the plane here. Third question. So do you see your need? Do you recognize who Jesus is? Do you see who Jesus is? And thirdly, have you experienced salvation? This is my favorite part of this text. Look at Luke 23, verse 42. And he, the repentant thief, said, Jesus, when, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Jesus, in this next verse, is about to speak some of the most grace-filled words in all the Bible. He says this, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, this is a criminal, a thief. He, Jesus owes him nothing. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal not only recognized Jesus as savior, he actually received him as savior. Okay, so, so when, when you hear salvation in the Bible, that is a big, bold, biblical word. And so I, I want to just give you some clarifying comments on that. When you think about this passage and Jesus saying, today you'll be with me in paradise, here's what we can know about this salvation. Number one, it's a gracious salvation. Grace is one way love from God. That's what grace is. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's God giving you something that you could never deserve, never earn, never merit on your own. And see, that, that's what this thief got. He got one way love from God. See, he could not um, unpin himself from the cross and go around and do enough errands to, to merit the grace of God. He couldn't do that. He was pinned to the cross moments away from death. And Jesus says this, today you're going to be with me in paradise. See, it's a gracious salvation. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to merit this salvation. It's, it's gracious. But even more than that, it's a guaranteed salvation. You see the word truly? That word is saying it's legit. Like, I'm being honest with you here. Like, I am for real when I say truly. Like, you are about to be with me in paradise. This is, this is for real. This is about to happen. It's guaranteed. It's a guaranteed salvation. Thirdly, it's a glorious salvation. You see in verse 43, this is, this is one of my favorite um, statements in there. He says, um, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, now, the, the thing that catches me is not the paradise comment. Now, Revelation definitely paints a picture of heaven that is beyond description. It's absent of, of sickness and sorrow and death. It's absent of all of those things that we wish were absent now. But do you know what makes it paradise? It's not that it's absent of those things. It's actually what it has in it. Do, do you see this? It's not just that you're going to be in paradise. It's, it's this. You're going to be with me in paradise. See, what makes heaven paradise is not that it's absent of all those things. It's actually because Jesus is in it. That you're going to be with the one that your soul was created and made for. It's a glorious salvation. Fourthly, it's an instantaneous salvation. See, the stress is on today. It's not you're going to be with me in paradise at some point in, in, in the future. It's today you're going to be with me in paradise. So, so when you think about this, when, when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not like, okay, then you go to a probationary period. Then you go into the line for processing. It's not that it's instantaneous. Like it's when you put your faith in Jesus, you're instantly saved. It's you are under the wrath of God. And now you get the rescue of God in a moment today. You'll be with me in paradise. Fifthly, it's a time sensitive salvation. There is a day when your opportunity and my opportunity will run out. 
There is a day when we cannot put our faith in Jesus. There is a day for that. And some of us have really bad plans as it relates to our future destination. I had a really bad plan. This was my plan for years. I'll live like I want now, and then I'll take care of that at the end of this thing. And that's a bad plan for multiple reasons. Here's one of them. Is your life is very unpredictable. Do you know that? We got a call this morning. A kid that used to be in our student ministry died in a car wreck last night. 20, probably one years old. It's that your life is that fickle. The the Bible says it's as fickle as a flower in the field. So to think that you're going to have time later is foolish. It's presuming upon the grace of God. I love what Matthew Henry, the old Puritan said. He said, we have one account of deathbed repentance in order that no man need despair. But we have only one in order that no man may presume. And some of us in the room, do you know what we're, we're doing? We're presuming upon the grace of God. We actually think that we're going to have a chance later on down the road. Can can I just warn you of this? Chances are you're going to die before you think you're going to die. Chances are. And so it would be foolish for you to presume upon that. But but it's not just the the fact that our life is really fickle and that our death is going to be unpredictable in that regard. But but your heart doesn't stay in neutral. Do, Do you know that? That your heart never is in neutral in relationship to God. It's always growing softer or it's growing harder. And that's why for for many of us in the room, this is the most dangerous place you could be on a Sunday morning today. It's because when you leave here, either one of two things is going to happen. You're going to be humble before God and repentant and obedient before God. And your heart's actually going to go softer toward him. Or you're going to be resistant to the things of God and your heart's going to grow harder toward him. You're going to just add one more callous on your heart to the grace of God. See, we're all like this. This is why Randy Alcorn, he he says it this way. We dare not procrastinate obedience. We dare not procrastinate obedience. Nothing is more fleeting than the moment of conviction. Of conviction. If we turn our backs on that moment, the next time may not come until we stand before our Lord. And, when, and then it will be too late to reclaim a lifetime of squandered opportunities. Do you, do you see that? Do you hear that? That it's time sensitive. That, that if God is at work in you today, can I tell you the most important thing you could do is to actually obey him? That's the most important thing you could do today if God's at work in your heart. So it's an instantaneous salvation. And one more. It's a faith required salvation. It's a faith required salvation. So if you could picture that, that courtroom scene one more time. So we're back in the courtroom of God's justice and the gavel has just been slammed down and the verdict pronounced. We are guilty, condemned as a criminal before God. And in that moment, the unthinkable happens. God, in that moment of, of pronouncing us guilty before him, sends his son, Jesus, to stand in our place With this offer of, I will take God's wrath, my father's wrath for you. I I will actually take that for you. Okay, now how did God do that? He did that when he sent Jesus 2,000 years ago to live a sinless life. To die on the cross as our sinless substitute. So all of your sin stacked onto Jesus, all of his perfection placed onto you. And, And he rose from the dead as the sinless savior. That's how God did that. So he sends Jesus to stand next to us with this invitation. I, I will, I will bear your sin for you. Okay. Now th- this is the offer of God to every human being that this is it. Do you want to pay for your sin or do you want Jesus to pay for your sin? See, th- this is the offer. This is the gospel. Do you want to pay for your sin or will you humble yourself? See yourself as a condemned criminal. See Jesus as the sinless savior and allow him to take that sin for you. See, it's your call. Do, do you want your sin or do you want Jesus to take your sin? And see, this is what faith is. Faith is looking at God and saying, I am going to trust you to count all of my sin against Jesus and to credit all of Jesus's perfection to me. That's what faith is. It's saying, God, will you do that for me? Do you you see that faith is treasuring, trusting Jesus for that and treasuring Jesus above all things. It's looking at Jesus and saying in wonder, Jesus is actually going to die. He did die for me so I could live. This is what faith is. It's trusting and treasuring Jesus. And you see it perfectly play out here with this thief. 
He's knelt to a cross. He sees his sin. He sees Jesus as a savior. And all he can think to do is throw himself upon Jesus. Essentially, he's saying this, Jesus, here I am. Bad, good, everything included. Will you take me? And Jesus says, I would love to. You're mine. Today, you've got paradise. See, it requires this moment of faith, this decision moment of us saying, I am in for that. God, God, will you please count my sin against Jesus, his perfection toward me? Will you do that for me? God, I'm trusting you to do that. See, it requires that moment of faith. This is why the Bible in Ephesians 2 says, you are saved by grace, not through filling out a card, not through raising a hand, not through walking down an aisle, not through going through a class. You are saved by grace through faith, trusting in God to count your sin against Jesus, his perfection toward you. That's how you're saved. So the question is, and we'll, we'll kind of land here. Has that happened? Have you tasted that salvation? Have you tasted that? Okay, now, I want to say this again. I'm not asking if, if you've got a moment in your past where you repeated a prayer. I'm saying, have you tasted that salvation? Have you experienced that moment of placing your faith in Jesus, looking upon him and wonder at all that he has done for you? See, that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian is when that moment happens, when God so changes our heart that we would see Jesus like this. See, there's going to be a a day for all of us when we stand before God and either one of two things is going to be highlighted for us. Do you know that? One of two things. Either our great sin or God's great salvation. Either our greatest ruin or his greatest rescue will be on display. Can I just plead with you? May you just sit under this and soak in this for a second and ask God, have I experienced that? Have you really done this work in my heart? Have I really walked down that road? Have I really tasted this salvation? And I want to end by um, reading this quote from Charles Spurgeon that I think would just be my plea to everyone in the room. It'll be up on the screen for you. And so just take a second to listen to this. He says this. I plead with every unconverted, unbelieving soul, those who think they're saved, those who think they're secure and those who know they're not secure. I plead with every unbelieving soul within this place. and I plead as for my life, friend, you are at war with God and God is angry with you. But on his part, there is every readiness for reconciliation. He has made a way by which you can actually become his friend, a very costly way to himself, but absolutely free to you. He could not give up his justice and so destroy the honor of his own character. But he did give up his only son, his only begotten and his well-beloved. And that son of his has, has been made sin for us, though he knew no sin. See how God meets you. See how willing, how anxious he is that there should be reconciliation between himself and guilty men. Oh, sirs and ma'ams. If you are not saved, if you've never tasted this salvation, it's not because God will not and cannot save you. It is because you refuse to receive his mercy in Christ. If there is any difference between you and God today, it is not from a lack of kindness on his part. It is from a lack of willingness on yours. The burden of your eternal ruin must lie at your own door. Your blood must be on your own hands. And I pray this would be a day where you taste that salvation. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to sit under that. allow the spirit of God just to press in to your heart anything that is helpful and beneficial for you in this moment and to wipe away anything that was unhelpful for you. This is a question every one of us has to answer. Who is Jesus? 
He can be a million different things and you be in the many. But he can only be one thing and you be saved. He's got to be a savior to you. He's got to be the one person that you are trusting God to count his perfection to your account. And so some of you are, um, you have been kicking the tires for a good while on this thing. And, And I want to remind you, this is time sensitive. Your life is as fickle as a flower. It's time sensitive. That if God is at work in you, I mean, this is a moment you need to respond to that. Not, not because someone is coercing you or manipulating you, but because the spirit of God is at work in you. And, and there's others in the room that, that you would, you would bet your life that you are secure, that you are right with God, that you have tasted salvation. But the truth is you are in the many. You, you are in the many. Who, who C.S. Lewis says that, that a horrific scene where they are banished from the presence of him who is everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows everything. You're in that many. Because you've looked at Jesus as a million different things, but not as a savior. You're still trusting in your own efforts. There's never been this moment where, where God has reacquainted your heart, reacclimated your heart, radically changed your heart to where you actually love Jesus. See, it's not just mentally agreeing. It's actually your heart saying, I love Jesus. And that love of Jesus producing this radically different way of living. So, so you've banked on a class. You've banked on a card. You've banked on raising your hand. You've banked on a million different things other than Jesus being the center of your life. And so there is no doubt some of us in the room today who we need to respond in faith saying, God, just like this thief on the cross, will you save me? I'm throwing myself upon you. In this moment, will you save me? And here's the beautiful answer of God, if that's you in the room. God would say this, yes, right now in this moment, I will save you. And and if God is doing that sort of a thing in you, will you just make eye contact with me real quick? If God is at work like that in you. Thank you. Just make, make eye contact with me for a second. Thank you. Thank you. Others in the room that you'd say, this is what God is doing in me. Thank you. Thank you. Any others? Just make eye contact with me if you can. there's a lot of us around the room who who are in that right now. And and so if if that's not you right now, I just encourage you to be praying over them that the Spirit would would really be doing a work in in their heart in this moment. And there's this other crew of us in the room who um, we we find ourselves that today we we are secure. But here's the truth. Because our life is not reflecting the fact that God has saved us, radically changed us. And there needs to be authentic repentance that is happening in us right now. That there needs to be good repentance that is happening for a variety of areas of our life that, that we are pridefully resisting God. So may this be a moment for you where you just let down all guards and you say, God, will you, will you humble me? God, will you take me to a place of repentance? And so this is why we are going to finish with communion um, this morning. For the, for the people who, um, for the first time, are trusting Jesus as Savior, this is what repent or this is what communion is. It is this beautiful celebration of of Jesus's body being broken for you, Him becoming sin for you, and you getting His perfect righteousness, and His blood being spilled for you, covering all of your sin. So when we dip the bread into the juice, we we are saying, Jesus has died as my substitute on the cross and for my sin. That's what we're saying. And and for those of us who are Christians in the room, here's what, when we take communion, here's what we're doing. We're remembering that. We're reminding ourselves that we have a glorious and great Savior. 
that has paid for every one of our sin, that God is loving us right now with one-way love. And so as we take communion, we've got a couple in the back, um, two tables in the back. We've got um, a couple in the front. And so you just have to kind of make your way up. You don't have to just form a line a, a hundred deep. So just as it clears out, you can come up with your family. And we're going to give you some time. We're going to sing a couple of songs and give you a little bit of time just to sit before God. And we've got some of our home group leaders and some of our um, staff guys are going to be around these tables. And if, if you today, if you look up at me, it's important that you go to one of those guys and verbalize that to them. It's very important. So we can start the process of kind of this journey of walking beside you in that. I'll be down here at the front, kind of my front right, your front left of the room. And so we would love to have that conversation, be able to pray over you. If you've got other areas, kind of issues in your life that need to be prayed over, these home group leaders around these tables would love to do that for you as well. So we're going to sing. And as you feel led, you can bring your family up and, uh, and take communion with us. And just to remind you, this is a family thing. So if you're not a Christian in the room, um, we, we invite you to sing with us. Uh, but before you take communion, we'd invite you to take Jesus, right? To take Christ. So God, we love you. God, you, you, you have been so merciful to us. So merciful. And the fact that you have sent your son to be slaughtered in our place. We recognize that we are condemned criminals apart from Christ. But in Christ, we are adopted sons and daughters. It is an amazing switch that happens. You have been so merciful. And so God, for those in the room that today they need to respond in faith, throwing their life to you, asking you to save them. God, I pray in this moment that would happen for them, that there would be this instantaneous salvation that happens in this room. And God, for those in the room that are Christians, that you need to bring to a place of repentance. God, will you be merciful in the way you do that this morning? So as we sing and as we sit under your word, um, God, I pray that you'd lead us. And God, I pray communion would be a great reminder for us of all that you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus. It's in your great name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.